of you are remaining in here. Uh, we're going to be back in the book of Job today. So you can go and have your Bibles turned to Job chapter 32. And if this is your first Sunday here and you're saying, oh, so we're in the series of Job, uh, this is a really good Sunday to be here because uh, we're starting a new section. So I'm going to quickly recap where we've been, kind of kind of catch us all up onto the same page, and then we're turning to an entirely new section uh, on this morning, and so it is a good time to jump in. Uh, to remind you, Job is a righteous man, and he has suffered greatly. Job has lost all of his possessions. He's lost all of his workforce. He's lost his status. He lost his family. He buried ten, all 10 of his children, and then after that, he loses his health. He gets boils all over his body, and then he has three so-called friends that are going to come comfort him, but rather than comfort him, they live out that phrase, uh, kick him while he's down, and that's really all that they do. They say, Job, the reason you're suffering is because you've lived a secret life of sin, so your suffering is a result of your sin, and so these so-called friends berate Job for eight chapters, they give all these speeches, and, and one will give a speech, and then Job will answer, and then one, another will give a speech, and then Job will answer. And each time they answer, they intensify in their anger against Job. You see, Job's, Job's confused why he suffered. He knows that he's lived a godly life, and he can't understand righteous suffering. And so this is, this is a question that we wrestle with today. Why? Why is it that bad things happen to good people? Why do righteous people suffer? And when we say righteous, we're not saying they're sinless, as if they've never committed anything. But why do people who love God and run hard after God, why is it that also they wrestle with trials and suffering? Um, and so today, someone new is going to come on the scene. Apparently, a man named Elihu has been has been present the entire time with the other three comforters. But he has not spoken until now. He has sat silently listening to all the arguments. And now he chooses his moment and says, I'm going to speak. And he will give six uninterrupted chapters of talking, and which consists of four speeches. And so we're going to cover all of that today. Uh, so we have a lot to read. We'll stand for a really long time. No, but... Um, so we're going to kind of take a bird's eye view of all that Elihu says. And I look forward, one of these days, we're going to need to come and look at just each one of his speeches and spend more time in every one of them. But today, we're not going to be able to say as much as we want about everything, but I think there's a big value to be able to just look at the entire argument that Elihu is going to lay out before us. Now, Elihu is, is an interesting figure. And if you know much about the book of Job, if you've read anything about Job, nobody seems to know what to do with this guy. Does he say wrong things? Many, many commentators or theologians would say he says nothing more than what the other comforters have already said. But if that's true, then why have him speak at all? And why is he not rebuked with them in the end? Others will say, well, there's some good things he says and there's some bad things that he says. But if that's true, then we need some kind of decoder to know which one is it. How do we figure it out? Um, so I, I take a view, a very positive view of Elihu, that he's a friend. And he's going to come and he's going to say really hard things. 
Just like in, in Proverbs where it talks about uh, faithful are the wounds of a friend, where he's coming because he loves Job, and he sees Job is in, is in, a, in a very difficult situation, and yet Job, Job has said some hard things that need correction. And so out of love but firmness, he's now going to come alongside Job. And, and his point is that he wants to, uh, to help Job understand his situation and understand the God who rules and runs this world. And so that's, that's what we're going to see this morning. The main point that Elihu wants to bring is suffering is a wondrous work of God that reveals our sin so we can enjoy his blessings. That's what we're going to see. Suffering is a wondrous work of God that reveals our sin so we can enjoy his blessings. And so I want to encourage you, go ahead and stand. We like to stand when we read God's word here. We do so just as, as a means of reminding ourselves and of honoring God that this word that is given to us is inspired by God and given to us so that we would be equipped and corrected and trained for righteousness. And so we're actually just going to read chapter 32, 1 through 5. So this is kind of the very beginning. This is just Elihu introducing himself and he's setting the stage. Here we go, verse 1, chapter 32. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. And he burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. And he burned with anger at Job's three friends because they have found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. So let's, let's pray. Father, Father, we come to your word today and we, we look at it. It's a tough section. Understanding the words of Elihu. And Lord, I pray that you would just give us wisdom as we dig in this morning. And that your spirit would give guidance and as we come and we see this message that, Lord, we would see on how it is meant to bring Job to repentance, and thus it is meant to bring us to repentance. It's meant to move Job to worship, and thus it's meant to move us to worship. And so, God, I pray that as we look at the truths that are going to be before us this morning, that they would fortify our faith, that they would strengthen our faith, that where we need to repent, we would do so, and that, God, we would love you, and we would desire to live in a godly life, trusting you even when we don't understand all that is happening. But we know that you are good. We know that you are just. We know that you are kind and sovereign and holy. And so, God, I pray that you would strengthen our faith today. And for those who do not yet know you, but I pray they would come to know you this morning. I pray that they would see these truths in your word and you would work in their hearts and open their eyes, that they would know you and they would love you and they would trust in you today. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So, so the first thing we notice with this guy, Elihu, is he's an angry guy. But as I said, it's... I think he's coming alongside Job as a faithful friend, and he's going to wound him, but just like we sometimes need hard things spoken to us, so, so Job does also. Four times, five verses, he burns with anger. And so that makes us wrestle and go, okay, is this right? 
Should he be burning with anger? Are we to be thinking that this is okay? And so I'll say, yes, it is. And let me give you two reasons why, we, why we're okay with the anger that Elihu has right now. Um, first, God also burns with anger at Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, the three comforters. We read that in Job 42, seven. And just so you know, there's a lot of verses coming your way. And so majority of everything we're gonna have on the screen this morning, because we got six chapters and we're jumping through all of them. Uh, so trying to make that a little bit easy, most everything I think is on the screen. Uh, Job 42, seven says this. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Timonite, my anger burns against you. Exact same words as Elihu. Burns with anger against you, against your two friends. So it's Elphaz, Bildad, Zophar. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So this surely confirms that Elihu is right to burn with anger against these guys. God burns with anger against them. So if God's doing it, it's, it's, it's good. Uh, so Elihu is in the right. But is he right to burn with anger against Job? That's the question. And again, I would say yes, because we know Job is wrong. We know he's wrong because in Job 42, he repents of the wrong things that he said. Listen to what he says in Job 42, 3 and 6. It says, therefore I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Verse 6, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He says, I've said wrong things. So he's repenting. And so that's, that's exactly why life's burning with anger. We might, then the next question is like, what'd he say? Like, right? What'd he say? We'll go back to Job 32, verse 2. And there we read that he burns with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. Job's right, God's wrong. That's Job's argument. And that's what we're going to look at today. So, so how did Job come to this conclusion? And so for that, we'll, we'll look at Job's argument. And Elihu summarizes Job's argument. This is something that the other guys do not do. They practically ignore everything Job says, and they just continue to berate Job with, no, you're, you're suffering because you've sinned. Elihu comes with a very different argument. But he, he's heard Job. And so in verses 9 and 11 of chapter 33, he's going to summarize Job's argument. So here it is. He says, you say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. So he's got two accusations here. Or two things that we find out. Number one, Job says, I've not suffered because of my sins. Elihu has clearly heard that. Job, you've, you've not sinned, or you've not, you've not, your sins have not caused your suffering. He says, I'm pure. He's not sinless, but he knows he hasn't lived this secret life of sin. And we know that's true because the beginning of the book repeatedly testifies about the righteousness of Job. But secondly, and this is where we get into the problem, because Job doesn't have a category for righteous suffering, he thinks God has treated him wrongly, like an enemy. That, that's literally what he says. He says, behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. Why is God treating me as an enemy? Now, if we're not careful, we can act very similarly 
to Job when we suffer. Like we know that actions have consequences. We know that as parents. We really know that, right? We see it before us every day. And we bring those consequences to our children. And we know that if I hurt someone, then there will be some sort of retribution, right? There's justice that needs to go forth. But the question is, how are we to understand people who, who believe in God, who faithfully live for God, who love him, shows the love of God, and yet then they, they die a long, painful death under a disease? Like how, do, how does that make sense? Or why is a godly family unable to have children? Like why, why would God do that? Why, why is a missionary who gives up everything and goes to another country to share the gospel tragically killed? When he's followed God, he lays everything out there. And we could go on and on. And I know, and I've thought about it today, just stories that I know are in this room of the sufferings that many of you have gone through. So when we start talking about Why is it that Christians suffer and why is it that people who run hard after God, difficult and hard things come to? That's that's not something that's far-fetched. Almost everyone in here has firsthand experience with that. And so it forces us to go, did God forsake these people? Has he turned a deaf ear to them? Did God have this plan for them, but did Satan thwart it? And so that didn't happen and that's why evil things have happened. This is what Elihu is going to address. This is what he's going to correct with Job and with us. Elihu wants Job to know God is not your enemy. He's your friend. If you've trusted in Jesus, then you need to know that Jesus Christ is your friend and he's your savior and he is your Lord. And that means that there is nothing that comes into your life that has any part of God's wrath in it. Do you know that? If you've trusted in Christ, and he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. He's fully absorbed all of God's wrath. So whatever comes your way, good or evil, is not God's wrath. It's not God's wrath. So we need to know that. Because if we don't know these things, then we are going to become like Job and go, well, is he treating me like an enemy? Is he pouring wrath on me? God is not our enemy but he is our friend. And so Laiu wants us to understand, so what is happening here? And so he's going to give four speeches. And in these four speeches, he's going to lay a foundation for Job. And this foundation is so that he can understand who God is and what he's doing in his life. And so he's going to do this by laying, found each of this foundation is going to be made up of stones. So think of four large stones fitted together that if Job stands on these, then he's going to be able to endure through whatever trial he is in. And so these, this, these stones then are meant to also be the foundation for us so no matter what trial, what situation, what difficulty comes our way, as we trust in the very words and truths of God's word, we will also stand firm and persevere in our faith. So the first stone that Elihu's going to set is God speaks. He wants us to know that God speaks in our suffering, that he is not silent. And in chapter 33, Elihu begins his first speech. And he says, God speaks to us in two ways. And he says, the first way is in dreams. And we're not going to be able to spend time on that one because of, of time. But the second way, 
he describes in chapter 33, verses 19 and 20. And there we read, Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. So Job has accused God of being silent. Job's crying out, God, I want to talk with you. He doesn't hear anything back, so he's like, God, God's not speaking to me. And Elias says, no, no, you're wrong. God is speaking. He speaks in your suffering. Now, many of you know the quote from C.S. Lewis. It's very popular. Pastors read it all the time. I've read it before. Whatever church you go to, if they read C.S. Lewis, then they've quoted it. It goes like this. Pain is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man knows that something is wrong when he is being hurt. We can rest contently in our sins, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse the world. So C.S. Lewis saying, man, when pain comes your way, never think that God is silent. And C.S. Lewis didn't come up with this. Elihu did thousands of years prior to C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis copied him and didn't give him credit. That's what we need to know here. No, no citing of Elihu in C.S. Lewis's writings. He wants us to know God is speaking. We often cry out in our pain. And yet Elihu's saying, know that God is with you, and he is speaking to you in your pain. This means that when facing trials, we, we can't quickly run and think that, well, maybe God has abandoned me, or maybe he's forgotten about me. Rather, we must know that, no, he is speaking. So then there's the question, are we listening? Are we listening to the very voice of God, or, or do we demand that God speaks to us in the way that we want to be spoken to? you know, in ease and comfort and blessing and really big, wide open doors. Isn't that how we pray? God, if you want me to do something, just open the door and then I'll know. And are we demanding that God comes to us on our terms as if God submits himself to us or are we submitting ourselves to God and saying, I will listen to you however it is that you will speak even in suffering. We must realize, and we see it all throughout God's word, that God uses pain as a means of getting our attention. We're going to see that he he does it for our good. Now, admittedly, this can be difficult to see at times. And we're often tempted when we begin saying, so you're saying God uses suffering, is in control of suffering in these trials, and he brings them into our life, and he speaks. So then it makes us often go, so is God all-powerful? Or, or is he good? It also, we, we feel like we have to make a choice at this moment. So if you're saying he's powerful and he uses all this, I don't know how he can then also be good and loving and kind and just. And so I think Elihu anticipates this argument, which is why the very next stone that he sets down is that God is just. And that's in his second speech in chapter 34. He talks about the very justice of God. And so let me read just a little bit in chapter 34, verses 10 through 13. It says this. 
Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. So, so most likely, if you read all these, Elihu's talking not only to Job and to the other guys, but there might even be more people around him. There might be some type of crowd that is listening because he's often addressing more than just Job and maybe more than just the other three guys. But he says, hear me, you men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man, he will repay him. And according to his ways, he will make it befall of him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth? And who laid on him the whole world? He's saying, nobody gave this to God. He is the judge. He is right. He is holy. He is righteous. He is perfect. That's why in verse 13, or verse 17, he says, Shall the one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? So Elihu's clearly not, not only saying God is just, he is righteous, there's no wickedness in him, but... If we want to deny his justice, we're denying all that God is. Because for him to be the maker, for him to be the creator, for him to be the God in charge of all things, the sovereign ruler, he is the judge. And he's the one who rules over everything. And so if we deny his justice, we're denying his righteousness, his kindness, and his love. His we're denying all that God is. So it's at this point that Job has spoken wrongly about God because he thinks God has not acted rightly towards him. Remember, God says, you're my enemy. At least that's how Job thinks at this moment. And we see, if you go to Job 34, verses 35 and 36, this is what we read. Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like wicked men. So again, remember, I was not, he's not being mean. He's listened intently to everything that Job has said. And he's saying, Job, come on, you know this isn't right. And he's steering him right back into the very truths of God's word. But he's saying, he's not calling Job wicked. He's saying, you're acting wicked. You're functioning like an unbeliever at this moment. You ever do that? Like we, we live by faith and I think we, we desire to live by faith and we want to run after him. But then there's decisions we make. There's ways that we respond to one another that are very ungodly. We're not kind. We're not patient. And at those moments, we're not trusting in God, but rather we're trusting in ourselves and we're living out this old fleshly self. And we're functioning as an unbeliever. Do, do you remember Job's wife? Like we're really hard on Job's wife, and I don't think that that's a good, fair um, response on our part. Like I think she does what Job does here, where when, when Job loses everything, and remember, Job loses everything, she loses everything also. Job loses 10 kids and buries them. She buried 10 kids also. And so she says, Job, just curse God and die. And Job says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. He doesn't say you're foolish. You speak like the foolish women. Job's wife wasn't foolish. But in that moment, 
She was functioning as an unbeliever. She was no longer trusting in the goodness of God, no longer trusting in his justice. She was just lashing out at God. There's a bitterness that can begin to settle in our hearts when suffering is prolonged in our lives. Like a lot of us, we can, we can sprint through a trial. Like we can sprint, man, it's one day, six hours, maybe a week, we can make it through. Six months, it's pretty hard. A year, pain and suffering every morning when you get up, being reminded of loss or, or whatever it is, that gets harder and harder. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced that where, where you, you yell up at the sky in defiance to God? Or you say, where are you? Do you even hear? Do you see anything, God? I was talking to a guy the other day. I've talked to him several times about this. And, and he, he says, I'm, I'm so mad at God. I lost a loved one, and I've not gone back to church since then. And he says, no category for how God could allow this to happen. And so he's angry at God. So he's like, I'm just not going back to church. I'm not going to do it. If God's not going to be on my terms, I'm certainly not going to go operate on his terms. And you might say, well, can't we give someone like that a pass? I mean, when you've had a loved one who's died, you know that emotional just turmoil that goes within the heart. And we say things, Right? We think things. That's what's so good about Job. He says what we think and what we're too cowardly to actually say, at least in front of others, right? But he says it. And in our hearts, we might say, well, maybe we just give that person a pass. We can understand it. Maybe maybe we should give Job's wife a pass. Job, Job went through a lot. It's okay for him just to lash out in anger against God. Let's give him a pass. Is that okay to do? You see, we want God to be just, but then all of a sudden we're like, well, can we, can we wipe some things underneath the rug? We can't. And now li- listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter six. I think this is so helpful. When you think about the words that come out of your mouth, think about this text, Luke six forty five. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. What comes from our mouths originates in our hearts. You get that? Whatever comes out of your mouth, when you say, oops, I didn't mean to say that. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. It was in your heart. It was there. It didn't come out of nowhere. When you yell at your children, it's because there's anger in your heart. When you curse or gossip or slander, it's because those things are in your heart. It's because we have sin within us. And Job has spoken wrongly about God. Why? Because there's sin in his heart. Now get this. Job is not suffering because of sin. That's the argument of the comforters. You have a secret life of sin, therefore bad things are happening. We often try to blame and and try to label things that way. Job has sinned because of suffering. 
You see the difference? The comforters are saying, you sinned, which brought suffering. And and Elijah was saying, no. You're sinning because you've suffered, Job. This is totally different than what has been said before in the book, which is why another reason we must look at Elihu differently than the other guys. This brings us to our next point, the next stone that now Elihu wants to set beside the others. So we know God speaks. He speaks through suffering. We know that God is just. Everything he does is right. And now he lays this other stone. God uses suffering to reveal our sin. He wants us to know this. Look at chapter 36, verse 5 and 7. 5 to 7. He says, Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he sets them forever, and they're exalted. Now, this argument so far is exactly what the comforters have said. The wicked are punished, the righteous are blessed, right? We love that truth. We want that to happen all the time, and I wish it did. It would be great. None of us have a problem with that truth. But notice what happens when we keep reading. Verse 8, 9, and 10. And if they, you got to know who they are, and if they are bound in chains and caught in cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they're behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. Did you catch it? Who's bound and caught in the cords of affliction? The righteous. Do you get it? So so go back to verse 7. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. Verse 7. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. Now, the righteous are we talking about? But with the kings on the throne, he sets them forever, and they're exalted. So the righteous are exalted, but, verse 8, and if they are bound in chains. So there is righteous suffering. Do you see it? And if the righteous are not blessed, but if they suffer. So we have another category here. We see it again. Look at verses 15 and 16. He delivers the afflicted, which we're still talking about the righteous, by their affliction. And he opens their ears by what? By adversity. He also allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping and what was set on your table was full of fatness, meaning riches and blessings. How are the righteous delivered? By their affliction. Adversity opens our ears to that which we previously would not have heard. Suffering and trials are a mean means in which God unearths pride in our life. Adversity brings out sin that previously lay dormant in our hearts. So this is, I think this is a helpful way to think about this. Um, church softball. It answers all questions. Uh, so at the last church, uh, we had a church softball league and we were part of it, and we had, we had a couple high school students that were, that were into baseball, and they were great. They played wonderful. One kid was, was really good. And, and one time, he, he hit the ball, went straight to short, shortstop. He's making his way to first base, and the shortstop was a big guy, and he had played some ball. And he unleashed that, that ball, and he threw it as hard as he could, and it hit 
the high schooler right in the face, dropped him right there. Immediately took him to the hospital. He's being looked at, he's being examined, cheekbone just cracked all through. But as they examine him, they find a tumor in his head. So you just think about this. The softball that broke bones in his face, revealed the tumor, was already there. It was there. So how is the tumor going to be found? And the doctor said, if we didn't find this here, this could have been, consequences would have been much, much different. But because of the stage and the timing of when they found it, they were able to move it, no damage, no problems at all. How was that tumor going to be found and how was it going to be removed by the cracking of bones? God, what appears horrible, we see throughout scripture, God uses for good. This is like his point. God uses suffering like, like a doctor uses a scalpel. It's this precision instrument. And God uses it to reveal sin, to bring things up in our life that we might not know, have known were there. And he does it so we repent of him and trust of him and, and depend upon God and experience greater joy in him. So Elihu, he desperately wants Job to know this. He's like, no, Job, you don't have a category for this. But when you understand that the righteous suffer and what God is doing in it, oh, we can have peace and joy and we can even praise in the midst of it. Now, you might be thinking, but is this true? I mean, Elihu, admittedly, Job's a pretty hard book to, to, to read. And his poetry it is hard to wrestle through these sections. When we go to the New Testament, we can find this truth over and over and over and over and over and over again repeated. And I'll just give you two. 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. You get it? Do we arm ourselves like that every day? Do you wake up and go, all right, here's the day for suffering. But I mean, think about it. He says, since Christ suffered, arm yourself, same way of thinking. Today I might suffer. I'm armed and I'm ready for it. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. As to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Do you see what happens? The suffering has, has a purpose for it that it, it causes greater holiness in our lives that we run even in more obedience and joy and dependence upon God. Number two, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful, 100%. Like we stop right there, right? Like, yes, let's just agree with that part. It is painful. What Job has gone through is painful. He says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And we know that often. When we've been able to come to the other side of suffering, there are times we can look back and say, yes, I can see what God has done. When you get to the end of Genesis, at the end of the story of Joseph, Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for evil against me, God meant for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. 
You meant evil, oh, but God accomplished great goods. And Joseph saw that, and he helps us see that. But, but there's oftentimes we don't see it, right? And when I look at a situation, sometimes there's no way that I can imagine how God can use this for good. After all, a couple weeks ago, three nine-year-old kids and three 60-year-old Adults were shot in Nashville at a school. How? How's that going to be for good? How's what happened to Job for good? We have to be careful here. The events in and of themselves are not good. Evil is not good. Break, the breaking of bones by a softball, it's not good. But yet God can bring good out of it. That's what Elihu wants us to see. He's not advocating for evil, but he's saying, oh, when we see evil running rampant, when the, when the storms come into your life, there might be times we have no understanding of how this is going to work for our good, but he is directing us to go, but God uses it for our good. We, it's wonderful when we get to see it, but sometimes we don't. And there might be a lot of things that we're in heaven and we're going to then be given information about at that moment that we'll see what God did. We have to remember this. If we reject this stone, then we will think God is our enemy. And we'll think that he counts us as his enemy. And we'll begin to run from him at this moment because we think he's already forsaken us. But when we understand that God uses that which appears to be evil and horrible and terrible. And it is. And yet he can accomplish great things out of it. Then we'll be moved to humility and patience. And when we need a reminder of that, you can go to Job. But the most clear understanding we have is the cross of Jesus Christ. You have to know. When we look at the cross, there's nothing good about the Son of God who came incarnate in the flesh to live a life, then rejected by his very creation, arrested, mocked, beaten, and crucified. The only reason we call Good Friday is good is because we know what God is doing, right? But on that first Good Friday, it wasn't good because nobody knew what was happening, right? Nobody knew, not till Sunday. Not till Sunday. So when we wrestle with these truths, God's not saying, just have more faith as if it just believe in nothing, but just hope. But he says, no, there's substance to our faith. Come back to the truth of God's word. Look at the character of God. Look at how he's acted. Specifically, look at the cross of Jesus Christ. So now he's going to give us one last stone. It's going to help us when we're falling, uh, to keep us from falling into sin when suffering strikes. And this last one is God's works are wondrously good. This is the last one. First stone, God speaks. God is just. Then we see that, that God uses suffering to reveal our sin. And now his works are wonderfully good. And I would love to read all of chapter 36 and 37, but we're not. So that's your homework. Go do it. It's great. Um, but in these chapters, Elihu just talks about the greatness of God. 
He talks about his power and his strength. And then he gets into how God uses nature. And he starts talking about God controls nature and fills the clouds with rain and, and covers the earth in snow. And he causes animals to go into hibernation. And he makes the waters freeze. And he causes storms and, and sends out lightning. And you might be going, what, what's he talking about? Like, how is this helpful at this moment, Elihu? But then he says this in chapter 37, verse 5. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. Elihu's reminding us, look at creation. There is much we know about creation, but there's also much that remains mystery. There's much that remains mystery. And we know that he wants us to see mystery is good because then in verses 15 to 20, Elihu gives a series of rhetorical questions all about what, what Job understands regarding nature and how God runs it. And all of it is, Job, you don't know. Amen. It is good. Like you don't know. And so Job 37, 14, Elihu says, hear this, O Job. So just put your own name there. And he says, hear this, O Job, stop. Consider the wondrous works of God. Creation's meant to amaze us and move us to awe. And when we look at nature and science and the stars in the sky, so much we understand. Awesome. He's given us minds and minds that are intelligent, that we can wrestle with these complex ideas. And yet at the same time, there's mystery in so much of the world. And the same is for God. There is much of God that we do not understand. If we cannot fully understand this world, then how are we to expect that we will fully understand the God who rules and runs this world? You see it? That's where he's going with this. And yet, he's stepping back and he's looking at creation. Do you see how good it is? All these things that he does, he's accomplishing for purpose. And yet, yet Job, you don't know how he does it. And yet, it's good. We can trust even when we're not sure of what is happening in this world and how God is using it for our good. In suffering and trials, there are certainly one of those things that often baffle us and we have no idea what God is doing. And yet, we can know that he accomplishes purposes through it. And one of the things we know that he's doing in trials is he's moving to bring us to repentance. The point of all of this in Job's life, one of the reasons was to bring him to repentance. And so when suffering comes our way, we must be weary of pride and arrogance and bitterness that wants to swell in our, our hearts and cry out to God, unfair. And if you've done that, Maybe you're in a season where you've been, God, you're wrong. Like what you have done is not right in my life. Or you've been crying out to God, you need to speak on my terms. And you've been ignoring him on his terms. And I would encourage you that the first response is to repent. In fact, we're called to do that every time we come into communion. Because when we come into communion, we're acknowledging God's rule and his greatness, but we're also acknowledging his grace and the need for his grace in our life that he would send his son to die for us so that we could be forgiven of our sins and have everlasting life with him. And that comes through suffering. And so if you've responded to suffering in a way 
in your life that you know you've yelled at God, you've defied God, you've rebelled against him, and you say, God, you're not good if you've allowed this, then the message is God has been speaking to you. And he's unearthed sin that you didn't even know that was there. And he does it because he loves you so much. He's dedicated to your holiness, to your transformation, to becoming more like the image of Christ. And he'll bring things into our hearts, into our lives, in order that we would be more conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you to come to repentance today. If you've been demanding God to come to you on your terms, We are not God. Functionally, sometimes we act like that. And functionally, sometimes we act as unbelievers. And when we do that, the response is to repent and come back and acknowledge our God and that he is great. We must listen to all the words of Elihu. When we do, we realize he gives us a strong foundation so that we stand on these stones when the storms of life come our way. We'll stand firm. Not because of our strength, but because of the truths of God that strengthen us. Stone one, God speaks in our suffering. Do not believe the lie that God is absent in your life when trials come. Stone two, God is always just. To deny justice is to deny all that God is. Stone three, God, like a doctor using a scalpel, uses suffering to reveal sin. There's nothing outside of his power. And if you're a believer... And we are promised that everything that comes into our life is not wrath, but for our good. And it's for your good whether you see it or not. Stone four, God's works are wonderful. We understand much of what he does, but yet there's also mystery. So let the mystery of God move us to humility and patience and not to arrogance and pride. We need to remember these stones And we need to be reminded of them regularly. And so when you are in trials, when you see someone in suffering, when someone shares with you and says, look, this is what I'm going through, that is not reason for you to step back from that person. That's a reason we step into that person and we begin gently reminding them of the truths of God's word, of who he is. And just praying with them and sitting with them and walking with them and reminding them that our God is good and he is working and praying that we do see it. But even if we don't, we know that his will is perfect and it will be accomplished and it's meant to move us to praise and glory. Remind each other of these truths. I need you to remind me of these truths. You need me to remind you. We need one another on a daily basis So much of ourselves, when we see people struggle and suffer, we step back and say, I don't know if I want to get into that. Yes, but as a body of believers, and as Jake talked about earlier, membership is commitment. We're saying, when you're struggling, I'm pressing in. When I'm struggling, I need you to press into me because we're family. We stood before the church and said, I need it. I'm not strong enough by myself. I need God's grace. And you often are the instrument God uses to remind one another of the very grace of God. So never forget that. If you're a believer in Christ, God uses you as his instrument of grace to help others. And we do that by knowing God's word and encouraging one another with God's word. 
And so we're going to take communion, and I want to encourage you, as, as we get ready, as the team makes their way up and begins praying, and maybe even as you take the or, or you know, you hold the elements, if there's room for repentance, if you know you need to come before God this morning, I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to do that before partaking of the elements this morning. Acknowledge that he is God and you are not. Acknowledge that he is good and we need his grace every single day. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for these truths. I thank you for this foundation that Elihu lays. And Father, I pray that our hearts are strengthened this morning. I pray that anyone here who's going through a trial, who feels like they're just surrounded by darkness at this moment, Lord, I pray that light has broken into their life this morning through your word. And they're reminded of your truth, that you are good, that you are just, that you are speaking, you are not silent. Oh God, may we know that. And when we doubt, may we always go back to the cross. May we always go back to the cross and see how God, you can use that which appears absolutely horrible and you can accomplish the greatest good out of it. And God, I pray I pray that for all of us, our hearts will be fortified today. So if we are not in a trial, we know that, God, you use trials all the time. And we know that there's a trial in our future, however big or small it might be. So, God, may we be strengthened today by these truths. And may we be ready to encourage others with these truths when we see that they struggle. God, your grace is good. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen.